Welcome to the very first Gab podcast. My name's Graham, and for the last six years, we've been running creative events in Glasgow, featuring talks from folk doing interesting things. We've teamed up with Phil and Steve at Elba Studios to create these podcasts, and our very first guest is Scottish writer David Keenan. David's second novel, For the Good Times, is published by Faber and Faber, and at the end of last year, we sat down with him to chat about his incredible creative journey, signing with Creation Records, running an underground music store, and then signing to Faber Faber for a worldwide book deal. We hope you enjoy listening to David as much as we did. David, welcome to the very first Gab podcast. Thanks very um, much. A lot, of, a lot of pressure on you to be very entertaining <laughs> as our first guest, but I, I genuinely can't think of a better guest to kick off our podcast series. This is the first time I've ever been involved in a podcast, so I'm going to start off with a question. When was the last time you did something for the very first time? This has become one of my working practices, as on my little rituals that I do, that I'm constantly trying to put myself in odd, difficult or strange situations or situations that I might not think are what I'm all about. One of the big things I've realised that can hold people back in their life is identity. It's having too much of an idea of who you are, and by I mean that, that that's rather than living who you are or opening yourself to possibilities, you often close yourself down to uh, possibilities. Recently, me and my wife got tickets to Britney Spears, who's playing next week in Glasgow, <laughs> so that's going to be something. Unfortunately, it turns out that I can't make it, and I've now got to do something else, but that was something that, this is a, a, an example of the things I try to do, because, you know, Britney Spears isn't really the type of music I'm really into, but I think as an experience, she's somebody who's exists right now, there's this amazing cult around it. I do like, I do like her album Blackout, actually, quite a bit. So I thought that would be an amazing experience to put myself in that situation. And it's something that I've done my whole life. That's how I became a boxer and started boxing for a while as well, because that was something that wasn't really me. Most of the people who are at the circles I moved in were really did not like boxing, even as a sport. Didn't like any sort of physical aggression whatsoever. But I have a level of aggression in myself, as in, in my personality, I think, which requires a... a a way out so I thought you know what I'm going to I'm just going to start boxing I'm going to get in the ring and it was also a question of uh, how brave could I be could I be brave enough to get in there and actually fight with these younger guys at the age I was as well and I could and it was amazing I mean I stopped eventually because um, you lose your speed and you get a little bit slower and you see these wee tiny killers that are like dynamos you know and you think you can mess and you really can't so you've got to know when to get out of the ring but that's another example of an experience of doing something for the first time I'm trying constantly to do that I have a big thing where I always say yes so if somebody asks me to do something I say yes another example is I'm playing in a cricket team next week at a cricket match <laughs> in Totnes and at a festival called Sea Change festival and somebody said to me do you want to play in the cricket team I don't even know how to play cricket I don't even know the rules but I was like sure so uh, there we go that's your uh, Twitter bio, like uh, Britney Spears attending cricket player. Yeah, always saying yes. That's, pretty, well, that's, that's quite interesting. I think this idea of reinvention is something I guess a lot of people who are involved in creativity maybe need to do, but also like want to do as well. What I'm quite interested in, a couple of years ago now, I think you gave a talk at our Gab events in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. It was maybe even three years ago. And at that time, you had just signed a book deal and your first book, This Is Memorial Vice, hadn't even come out yet. But you were talking about how exciting it was to go this new journey mm -hmm. and over since then I guess we've been kind of watching from afar as you've went on this journey from as you said visiting food banks to headlining book festivals <laughs> yeah. what's what's that been like I mean it's been absolutely incredible and I'm very conscious of always reminding myself how remarkable it is because one of the most incredible things about uh, success and this this I mean this was my dreams coming true this isn't wasn't just I was successful in a line of work and I was I was happy about it this being published not only being published but being published by Faber and Faber and having a successful book totally on my own terms as well without any compromise in fact with an editor who pushed me even harder a relationship I never thought I would ever have never mind an editor at Faber and Faber who I mean I, there's no publisher I would more wanted to be published by they were definitely my first, my dream choice but the, the most incredible thing is with even when even when the, when the level of dreams coming true happens sometimes it doesn't really feel a reality and you can often even be blasé about it. So I have to constantly remind myself how remarkable, how special, how unlikely this is because anything becomes humdrum and workaday when, when, it, when it becomes your everyday reality. And, and again, it's like you mentioned about these, doing these things you've never done before. You have to come up with strategies somehow for keeping it completely alive, keeping it challenging and reminding yourself of the import. Because one of the tendencies is with people, and I've even found this in myself, is as soon as you achieve something, you then recalibrate to the next goal. You know, it's never quite enough. No matter what big success happens to you, you're like, okay, now I want this. But what I've kind of learned or what I've, I've tried to uh, make myself do a little bit is know when you're there. Know when enough is enough. Know when you're able to say, 
I have reached here. I have what I want. I am happy to stay here. I no longer need outside things to take me to the place I need to be. I'm there now. And be absolutely sure of it and remind yourself of it all the time. You're here. You don't need to go any further. And I look around my life and it does it ticks every box I could possibly have wanted as a younger man. And I need to remind myself that, that I'm here. There's nowhere left to go. And of course there always is, because I'll always be achieving and I never really want to stop writing. I never want to stop writing. I always want to talk about it. But at the same time, I'm now doing that. And when I, whenever I have my doubts or I feel down or I question what I'm doing, I always go back to the writing. I don't allow that to get in my mind. I sit down and I prove to myself again and again why I'm doing what I'm doing, why I have the talent to do it and what I love about it. I'll sit down. If I ever do, I'll say, okay, well, I'm sitting down. Four hours later, I'll stand back up, remind myself the core activity, the central thing and the reason I'm doing it is still ultimately for the writing. I'm just very lucky in that I can do that all day, every day now. That's interesting, talking about going back to the core activity and what you love, the writing. Now, I've got this idea of you as a professional writer living this uh, life like fear and love in, in Las Vegas. There's a now, little bit like that, yeah. Is it like that or, <laughs> or is, it, is the actual reality of, say, being a published author, the fact that you're meeting with agents, talking about sales figures, talking about marketing, is it or is it somewhere in between that? On the whole, it's... Um, I remember... Irvin Welsh, festival number six last year, was giving a talk. And I think somebody said to him, what are the qualities you think you need to have to be able to be like a big famous writer? And Irvin said, a great capacity for loneliness. An odd answer, but completely accurate. And I really understood that as well, because there, there is a lot of percentage of fear and loathing in Las Vegas, definitely, because, I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I've learned is the literary scene party harder than any scene, <laughs> including the music scene. And I've played in the music scene for years, but even I find it hard to keep up sometimes at these literary events because it's completely over the top. So I'm glad I don't live in London because I might even be dead by now, you know what I mean? <laughs> but so there is a little bit of that, and I like to indulge in that. I like it that there's definitely a place for ecstasy in your life. But I think on the whole... The writer's life is a very lonely life of working. Mm. So if you do not like, if you don't enjoy writing, if you don't enjoy your own company, you will be absolutely miserable as a writer. And I do, and in fact, I prefer solitary work. I'm not really a collaborator. I'm not a collaborator by nature. I just like to do my own thing. I don't like it to be interfered with. And I like it to be 100% my vision. And I like to work on it alone with almost no feedback or input from anyone until I feel it's completed. You know, I'm completely in this world and living in it. But having said that, it could be a lonely existence. I get up, my, my, my uh, strategy is I get up, I don't even allow anything to get into my head except I write and I walk straight to my writing desk and I start writing every single day. The difference is when I was working, when I was on a record store, things like that, I would have to start writing late at night, say 10 p.m., something like that. I would, I would snatch a few hours. That's when I wrote this is memorial device and things like that. At night, a few hours every night after coming home from work. So being able to write full time now has turned my schedule around and that I'm definitely, it's the mornings when, I, when I'm most creative. And I like to move straight to the desk when I'm still in that semi-dream state, haven't fully woken. And normally everything I've been working on the day before thinking about it becomes resolved unconsciously by allowing that little process to happen every morning. I mean, there are little business things and what your, your writer, the writer's life is full of wee niggly emails you've got to get back to, wee things you've got to do here or there, or small interviews or things like that. There is a lot of like small time maintenance that goes back and forth behind Pod all these podcasts. things. Podcasts, things like that. But then I enjoy everything that surrounds it. I like talking as well. I like talking, I'm definitely a verbal person and I like talking and articulating for myself the reasons that I'm doing this. And because one of the things another thing that, fa that, that success brings you face to face with is yourself, especially when you're writing. I mean, it's like, I mean, people talk about psychoanalysis. I've never been to psychoanalysis and I don't think I would ever like to be. But I think writing is definitely akin to that somehow because you're really, your, your core obsessions, your strange neuroses, the things that trouble you, the little negative, the images that recur again and again, you start to, you start to uncover all this as you're writing and it, it's quite fascinating. If it's okay, I'm going to go back a bit further, mm -hmm. back to the start. So when you're younger, creativity has, I guess, always been within you and something you have to get out. Mm -hmm. And when you're younger, you used to create zines and so is it fair to say you've always pretty much been into this idea of DIY culture and just creating stuff? It's always been vitally important to me, I think. I'm always more interested in something when I see that someone's done it themselves. When I see that they have the belief in their creation to get it out there without waiting for permission mm. or someone else's sanction. That, to me, is really... I'm not so much interested in the content as that the strength of impulse behind it. So when I see that strength of self-belief, it always moved me. And fanzines, I was always... I loved books, I loved to write. I was very into science fiction as a as a as a young kid. Um, it's interesting because people are always like, 
Growing up in Airdrie, a very working class town, people are always like, oh, there should be more working class representation in publishing or we need more working class heroes and that you can relate to in fiction or art or movies or whatever demographic you come from should be more represented. But I always, I hated that. I always wanted to find people who were totally different from me. Yeah. And I think that's why I went to science fiction first because science fiction was not about working class or growing up in a small town or this is your chances or that you're, you're going to get held back. It was completely different rules on another planet and that appealed to me much more. So I was always looking for examples of things that were beyond me that did not come from my background in any way whatsoever that were completely different and challenging and exciting in a way that said there's a million possibilities out there no matter where you come from really you know I never felt held back held back by that at all but it was a DIY thing that really got to me because I'm reading when I was into science fiction I would get science fiction fanzines and comic fanzines and I loved that I was like wow these people just make these things themselves and put it out there and then I discovered Virgin and Union Street in Glasgow stocked had a magazine section but they also stocked fanzines if you want your fanzine stocks you could just get in there and let you sell it there it was amazing so I, began, I, I encountered these fanzines I was like wow this is just like science fiction but it's about music you know so I began reading these things reading about these bands like the Pastels I went to see the Pastels in, in Fury Murray's and yeah, I think it was April in 1987, supported by the Vaselines. It was my first gig. I was underage at the time. And that, to me, was like stepping into any lane planet. I walked into a few of the Murray's, and it was these guys who looked like, people in the audience who looked like they were in the Ramones or something. Do you know what I mean? Like leather jackets that were too small for them and that amazing bowl cut. And guys who looked like the factory in the 1960s and then the parcels on stage. And they, they really have a rudimentary grasp on their instruments, but the energies absolutely incredible so that was a really big moment for me realizing that you you know you can create you can create the culture you can make it you can make a decision to get your stuff out there without waiting for anyone else to say it's okay and in a way that's the history of like avant-garde or vanguard uh, publishing writing all these things it's always these things that are ahead of the curve and then everyone catches up that's why ulysses was privately published by shakespeare and company before it was picked up by anybody else because it was just ahead of the curve you know and that's when it, things are exciting so that's an interesting point because i think when it comes to creative it's pretty easy to be a critic. It's pretty easy to knock things down. You know, social media, every time, for example, in our industry design, every time a new logo is released, you just know there's going to be this barrage of hate and criticism for it. So that idea of being a critic, for you, it's it's always been important. Is that right, to be an enthusiast? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, that's my total byline, the enthusiast. That's how, if I could give myself a... Uh one title, it would certainly be that, an enthusiast. When I was writing about music, it, it was always more about championing things I really, really loved and also writing. It was really important to me as a novelist to go through that training as a music journalist, because what I would try to do in my pieces was write something that matched the pleasure and the energy of the music, not something that critiqued it or took it apart or, you know, laid it in pieces and did dissembled it, because, I mean, who cares? It's, it's a dead thing after that. So I wanted that you would engage in my pieces, hopefully, in a way you would engage the music and I would try and match it for energy, match it for excitement. I loved the writer Lester Bangs. He put a book out after he was dead, Drew Marcus compiled it called Psychotic Reactions and Carbure or Dung. It came out in like 87 or 88, just as I was getting into all this sort of DIY culture. Still one of my favourite books and it totally blew my mind. The quality of the writing, it was so personal. His engagement with the music was so tied up on his own life, but just the energy of it. You know, I like reading Lester Bangs on Lou Reed as much as I like listening to Lou Reed. So that was the big challenge for me to get that across. And in a way in general, going back to this trying new things as well, I'm, I, I'm all about saying yes. I think more and more in the, the culture that we come from ever it's so negative and it's so about critiquing and it's so about leaping on our things it's so about saying down with us or destroy this or this is no good and, and you know what that's so easy it is so easy but it's so difficult to say yes it's so difficult to stand up passionately and say what you're for it's so difficult to stand up and create rather than stand up and destroy and that's always been the thing for me I still think of myself as an evangelist you know and even in my books there's one thing that runs through them in my novels I think it's people trying to say yes even in difficult circumstances trying to say yes to the to the absolute reality of their life outside of any idea of it because the big thing I've come come to and how, how I live my own life and this comes from I'm very interested in magic and the occult not so much the culture around it but the ideas on it I'm also interested in religion I think of myself as, as having a, a religious temperament and my idea of religion is faith and awe have faith and have awe and faith to me is very difficult different from belief you know, faith doesn't require belief. I think that uh, belief is less than faith. I think if you if you approach reality with a belief, 
then well, either lives up to that belief or you have to refuse it or fence out everything that doesn't do that. And I say that where you have a, you're a fundamentalist in your approach to religion or you're a fundamentalist in your approach to politics, whether that's Marxist, fascist, whatever, all these things, all these people who, who interpret the entire world through an ideology or a mindset. So I try to live in faith and what that means is I try to accept what is without any preconceptions, without any idea of what should be and without any idea of who I am myself. I don't let, I don't ossify, I don't become this kind of like thing cut off from life that sees itself separate from it. And what that requires is saying yes. And I think that's what faith means. Faith means saying yes to what's in front of you. It's that, it's that Nietzsche and I, Nietzsche had this idea, and it was tough for him to live it himself. He had this idea that um, one of the end points of his philosophical ideas is that treat everything as if you asked for it as if you wanted it, even the difficult stuff. And I love to, to, to see things from that viewpoint, but I would take it further and say, treat your entire incarnation as if you decided to be incarnated to do all this. But in a way, how could you have? Because if you decided to do this, which again shoots down this idea, if you decided what your life would be like, your life would be so boring, it would not be worth even living. Because you would only have like nice things happen to you, there'd be no difficult stuff. It would be like the worst movie of all time. You'd walk out, you'd be like, I'm, I'm out of here. This is absolutely boring. So that's why I try to say yes to the most difficult stuff and I have a wee grin when something difficult or hard happens a wee devilish grin because I'm like oh what's what, what, where's this taking me we, we know why why has this even happened this is interesting you know and but it's an attempt to always say yes always be up I think it's a life. great way it's a great way it's funny because I'm, I'm quite a shy person and um putting myself forward to host this podcast is maybe one of the least likely things to do <laughs> but like that someone said to you Steve said do you want to do a gab podcast mm -hmm. we thought well, you need to say yes to it. Yep. You need to say yes to opportunities because mm -hmm. if you say no, it just closes down so much stuff. Now, you spoke quite a bit there about music and it's clear like music is one of your like biggest loves in your life. I, I'm jealous of you. You achieved a dream that I would love to. You signed for Creation Records <laughs> for Alan McGee. Yeah. What I'm interested in around that is, was it as creatively exciting as it sounds? It was for a time. It was really, I mean, I was talking about party scenes. I was talking about how the literary scene really do party hard. I mean, when we signed the creation, it was probably the absolute apex of this uh, party years just before McGee went in and seclusion and stuff like that. So it was great for us at the time. We were, what, early 20s and really loving it and being in the midst of that. And it was incredibly exciting. And it did feel that there was a small independent music company who I'd been a fan of since like the Mary Chain and stuff like that was suddenly kind of exploding. It was a very, very exciting moment. Although I felt quite disillusioned at the same time, I'll be honest with you, because at the same time, I felt there was a lot of this kind of, um, you know, that sort of rock dinosaur, sort of very decadent partying going on there. And after a while, just going down there, it just kind of felt the same as all the other crappy sort of uh, record business stories you'd heard in the 70s and 80s. And I don't, I always felt quite disillusioned about it. In fact, one of the sections in Memorial Device when the band actually go down to London and think about signing with a major, it's kind of based on the feelings I began getting after being around that too much. And also, I just saw there was so much money around then as well. There was just, that's why so many bad records were being made at that point in creation as well. I mean, the group that I was a part of, I mean, we started off being into Sonic Youth and Dinosaur and going to like American guitar bands and things like that. But the next thing you know, they're in the studio and they're getting like string sections in and they've got to hire my guy to do pedal steel. And I'm like, what? You know, we went from being this kind of raw, like rock group to being this kind of like crappy Baroque pop orchestra kind of thing. And that didn't interest me at all at that point. And to be honest, I was quite miserable. That was probably the lowest, the lowest point of my life probably was just when I when I decided to leave that band and get off creation because I just realised it was going in a direction that I had no interest in whatsoever, really. It was a wake-up call because, as you say, I mean, that would have definitely been at that time. We played, we toured with Oasis on the first tour and stuff and it was fun being around that sort of stuff. But I very quickly realised it was wasn't me. It wasn't what I wanted to do. And I've always been more about words. I mean, I got into music, but I liked writing about music more than playing it, probably. You know, and I liked reading about it as much as listening to it. So, you know that, there's that cliche, like, every rock writer is, like, a field rock musician, but it was the opposite. I was, like, a musician who was, like, a field rock writer, do you know what I mean? So I wanted to get back into that. So packing in the band, I still made music and played in bands because I enjoyed it. And also because it feels if you're going to write about something or have pass a, a um, opinion about something, you should maybe know the mechanics and know how it works. So many music writers have never played in a band. I've never been on tour, I've never worked in a studio. So I don't really understand how these things work. So I wanted to be on the other side of it, just to kind of get in and understand the mechanics and be able to write authoritatively about it. Kind of going to talk about, you run Volcanic Tongue, which is an underground record store label yep. for 10 years. Mm -hmm. um, what I was really, we, we first came across you, we had our, our first design studio in the Hidden Lane in mm -hmm. Glasgow. Yeah. I remember we got shown around a few spaces and one of them was beside this cool experimental music shop that had a Japanese noise section. <laughs> and I, I, I admit, I'd never heard
heard the Japanese noise and I thought, we need to take this room. But what really interested me is we started to look at your website. Now, you were selling music and you were selling music across the world to people and yet you didn't have a single sound clip on your website. So you sold music by describing the music in words. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point. And we did kind of resist it precisely because that. I wanted it to function as a magazine as much as anything else that would round up only the most interesting stuff every week. And we had a very uh, strict filter. We only stocked things that we liked. We only stocked things that we thought we could be evangelical about and get behind. We just didn't stock anything that we didn't like at all. But that was always my approach in writing in general, was to try and capture the sound of the music in the writing. So I've always had a sort of a synesthetic approach, you know, where you like smell colours or you, you confuse the senses. And maybe a influence from science fiction as well, of making up words or using words that may, or being more experimental with language and things like that to get close to what the... Uh, the music sounded like. So it was a brilliant challenge and it was a very different style of writing for anything that I've done. I mean, when I wrote for, say, The Wire, which has been the main music magazine that I've contributed to over the past 25 years or so, I mean, I would take my time, a lot of work. Some of the big features would take weeks. I'd spend a lot of time working on it. Whereas for Volcanic Tongue, I wrote a million words in 10 years for Volcanic Tongue, wow. which is absolutely mental when you think back. But I was basically writing almost every day music reviews and I would write them without a thought in my head. I would just stick the record on and then I'd play it for a second time, I'd start writing and that no editing, that would be it. And sometimes my rev reviews would run to thousands of words depending on how sort of loquacious or inspired I was feeling. But it was, it, was a, it was operating from a different part in my brain. It was a, not a conscious brain. It was allowing me to feel, feel language. I would feel the words in my mouth. Sometimes I'd read back the reviews just to get to make sure I had the rhythms and things like that, you know, that, that, that worked with the music. And again, I think that is, that's been a big influence on my fiction writing because I think I'm in a, a zone now with my fiction where, again, I feel like it's kind of beaming through me. I don't really have a conscious thought. I, I don't allow myself to think about it too much. I never plot. I never plan. I never do all these creative writing things like figure out my characters or understand their motivations or anything like that. I just write mindlessly, you know, without allowing myself to pause. I just see what's happening and then I watch the characters and I allow them to interact. And quite often I'm surprised and I never hold out for a book going this way or that way or having a particular ending or even a particular resolution of relationships. I absolutely let it flow. In fact, I get out of the way. I get out of the way as much as I can. Even when I'm, especially actually when I'm doubting or I'm niggling and I'm like, ugh. I don't like that, or is he really? Why is he doing that? Or that, whenever that happens, I kind of like, you know what, write that out. This could be really quite interesting. And it came, I think, from that 10 years of writing a million words just every day about music, just loosening up things, getting my language more rhythmic. And, and to this day, rhythm is totally important. I mean, I will, I will, when I get the proof of my book back, I do read it out under my breath as I read through it, just to make sure. And if there's ever a rhythm I stumble with, I'll go back and redo the sayings. And I don't mean it's on, on an obvious rhythm, because rhythm, sometimes the rhythms can be complex, but it still needs to move in a way that doesn't trip you up. Because I like the writing to be transparent. I like it to be transparent, but I think you can have a rapturous transparency. I think when you say, I want my writing to be transparent, people think, well, you mean like Ernest Hemingway, where it's just like these blunt words. And I went, no, 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 I don't think that. I think that you can write in a really rapturous way, which is still transparent. Which, And what I mean by that is you don't stumble over words. And the things that will upset that is bad rhythm and also overuse of, of words that are just simply too wordy or you're trying too hard to sound poetic. These are the things that will trip up a sentence. But it doesn't mean you can't be rapturous in your language. But I sort of rap transparency is what I'm always tr trying to go for. So there's a lot, of, I guess there's a lot of discipline to writing. Um, and you were writing, you decided to write your first novel. You're moving away maybe from music writing. But is it true you were, you were writing your first novel, but something happened to it and it got destroyed? I destroyed it. That's what <laughs> happened. <laughs> what happened is I read it and destroyed it. Well, see, I gave myself, look, I had no idea how to write a novel. No idea. And I was and I was certainly was not going to go on a creative fiction course or find out anyone's idea how to write a novel. And I'd been reading novels my entire life. And I think that's the best, the biggest qualification for me to write a novel as somebody who's been reading novels seriously for a long time and is a reader and likes to read so I was like the time had come I, I, it happened in my 30s I always knew even since I was a kid growing up in Airdrie that I would you know I would write a book about Airdrie and memorialise it I'm not really sure why I felt it was special magical and I knew I wanted to I mean it, was, it sounds like corny but I did want to give something back I wanted to repay the debt that I owe to Airdrie as, 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 for transforming me the transforming experiences I had there and the possibilities are open to me which most people would think oh, what a joke possibilities in Airdrie this is another reason why I wanted to write the book because there are possibilities everywhere if you get beyond these cliched ideas of who you are or who you should be or, or what happens in 
towns like this. So I always knew I would write about your day and things like that, and I always wanted to write a novel, but I was so caught up with music writing, and I, you know, I'm on deadlines constantly, and then I'm running my shop and stuff. But I began to get in my 30s and decide. That's when I began to feel the need of a big project, a project that would maybe last years, you know, that, that, that a long-term thing. So I just began writing. I just thought, okay, I'll write a novel. I sat down and started writing it, and it was wretched. It was really wretched. And I, I did start a despair, and I was like, God, I've just not got it. This, I just, I just don't have it. I, I don't know how to put a novel together. This is absolute bilge. It's embarrassing. It's absolute crap. But then I was like, you know what? I'm not gonna. This is a life dream of mine. So I'm not gonna give up. I'm not gonna give up. So I said, I'm gonna make a deal with myself. I'm gonna complete this wretched crap horrible novel. I'm not going to let myself stop. I'm going to get all the crap out of my system. Every cliched idea about how you write a novel, all the crap dialogue, all the stupid characters, all this absolute garbage out of my system. And then I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to make myself work hopelessly and still do it. So I worked hopelessly for a year and a half, knowing that at the end of this wretched book, all that would happen is the book would be destroyed. And I did it. It's a long time as well. Uh, yeah, it was a year and a half it was of every night working on a crap book. Terrible. And at, then what, I, at what point did you know you were going to destroy it? Quite soon. I'd say a few months in, I was like, this book can't be a way to live. But I, I need to complete it. I need to prove to myself I was writing for the right reasons. I was improving as a writer that I wasn't going to put in now that I wasn't 100% in love with. And also that I was able to create hopelessly. I was able to create without any promise of hope at the end and still do it. Not only that, the only hope I've got is that it will be destroyed. I know that that'll happen. Can I still create in the face of that with no reward? And if so, I said to myself, well, then maybe I've got what it takes to be a writer. And I did it. I honestly did it. And I did, made doubly sure that it could be ne never be retrieved and that I deleted the file with the book on it. And then I smashed my laptop with a hammer <laughs> into small pieces and threw it in the bin. It's pretty extreme. Had, but it was part of the ritual. I really, I had to physically destroy it. There was no way back. A year and a half of, of writing and work completely, just irreversibly destroyed. And then I started again. And then I began to find that I had. I, be, I began to, uh, I found my own rhythm. My, my true obsessions came out, the way I wanted to write came out and I began to discover my own voice and, and start to really, really enjoy it. So that's interesting. So you're, you're sitting writing your novel, This Is Memorial Device. You're happy with it and that's great. But did you, did you have an inclination when you're writing it that this is going to be successful, this is going to be it? Did you, did you think that and did you need to think that in order to power yourself through? To no, it? I didn't because my whole, whole hopeless project allowed me to create without any hope at the end. So in a way, it didn't really matter. I was able to create without even thinking about never get published. In fact, to be honest with you, I was quite cynical. And this is one of the, this is one of the times why you always struggle to say yes. And I even remember points when I've been cynical about myself and even my own, even the, the possibilities of myself, which is mad. But I definitely felt it at the time, like, I'd give all these reasons, like, yeah, you know, publishing is not like it used to be in the 60s and 70s, where you could really get away with brilliant left-field, avant-garde uh, novels. It's really conservative these days. They only, like, publish really, like, dull books, radical books like I'm writing, don't have my chance. I'd be all this crap. I'm telling myself complete nonsense, you know what I mean? So I'd kind of convinced myself in a way, without even investigating, without even trying, I was convincing myself that there was no avenues for the radical fiction that I was writing. It was madness. And it's all self-doubt. It's totally complete madness. So interesting, so you're sitting there with this novel, you didn't smash this one up, you've got this fully completed, but you got signed to a publisher on quite, what turns out, it was quite a strange way, is that right? Absolutely. So, so what happened is, so for 10 years after I began learning how to write and I was constant as a novelist, I just wrote one novel after the other. Never submitted them. Again, partly the stupid cynical thing I always have where I, partly it was arrogance, but misplaced arrogance, stupid arrogance, like, oh, this is too, this is too way, this is too way field for these squares. They'll never understand this. Do you know, this, this kind of crap, you know what I mean? But I, I didn't really know how to go about getting published. I didn't know how to get an agent. I, I sometimes I'd look in the writers and artists yearbook and I'd just sigh and put it by on the shelf and <laughs> I'll just go back to writing. It's all too complicated. I don't even know what to do. I had no contacts in the literary world whatsoever. So in over 10 years, I wrote like six novels. I completed one after the other. Oh. And all I would do is as soon as I finished one, I'd put it away, nobody'd read it, and I'd start writing another one. That's did it again, crazy. again. It was mad. And then what I would do is when I finished the next one, I'd go back to the previous one and edit it. So I was constantly in love with novel. So I'm six novels in in 10 years. No one's ever read them. <laughs> I'm sitting there convinced that no one will ever read them on my high horse about it, actually. Feeling kind of good about the fact nobody will read them in some mad kind of way. And then totally out of the blue. Oh, it's actually, the, the full story is quite funny. What happened is I reviewed, there's a book by a guy called uh, Richard King called... Uh, uh, original rockers and I know he's still smarting over this a little bit but I reviewed his book for The Wire it was a book about a memoir of a record shop in Bristol and I, I did totally pan it I thought it was awful I really thought it was awful uh, and I just kind of took it apart and the next thing you know 
the editor, who's only editor I've heard of, Lee Braxton at Faber and Faber, followed me on Twitter after I demolished this book that he had edited. And I was like, well, that's weird. But I thought, but that's cool. What a cool guy that he would follow me after doing that. That's quite a lot. And then I just thought, you know what? He's the only editor I've ever heard of. I know he's worked with Kim Gordon. I know he's worked with Julian Cope. And he's done loads of cool books. And it's Faber and Faber. I was like, maybe this is a weird sign. Maybe it's a sign I, I need to pay attention to more. And actually just say yes to this and see what happens. So not knowing that this is not what you do. I mean, major publishing houses do not submit unsolicited, do not accept unsolicited manuscripts. I private messaged them on Twitter. And I was just like, I, honestly, it was like two lines. It was like, so it was like, hey, mate, I've written a novel. Do you want to read it? <laughs> <laughs> it's just like that. And then he wrote back, he was like, sure, mate, send me a couple of chapters. It was simple as that. And this was on a Friday, right? So on a Friday, I was like, oh, wow, we'll leave from Faber wants to see a couple of chapters of my book. And I just finished editing this as Memorial Device. That was the one I just finished uh, working on at that moment. So I thought, well, that's the one in my mind. So I'll, I'll, I'll send over, I sent him three chapters from this is Memorial Device. And he wrote back, this is Friday night, he wrote back, and he's, well, he wrote back first, he said, I'll read these very quickly and get back to you on opinion. But I think he was me and I'll read these very quickly, destroy your hopes and dreams, say you're an absolute chancer and get you out of here. He was probably looking forward to it. He probably was. I mean, he probably thought, I'm going to get a laugh at this guy's writing and I'll get a wee bit of revenge here. <laughs> you could not blame him, actually, you know? But anyway, Friday night, Lee uh, messaged me and he's, he just says, I like it. Send the entire novel. That was on Friday what? night, and I was like, wow, that seems quite hopeful, you know? What, so I, what a Friday night? Yeah, so I sent them on, I sent my entire novel over on Friday night. On Monday morning, I had done here in over the weekend, but on Monday morning, I got a message from Wee Braxton at Faber and Faber, and he's like, uh, please send phone number. So, like, I sent him my phone number, and he's like, I'll call you at one thirty. So, I was in town, I was in town having uh, lunch with my wife, and Lee calls me at one thirty and made me an offer, an offer for worldwide rights for Faber and Faber for my book, oh, right no. then and there. And that was that. It was completely, and that was that. Signed the Faber. It was insane. And that's you on this crazy journey. Yeah, and then I've got all these books, which you know Faber are now doing. One, which I'm presenting to Faber one by one as we go. I'm still writing and going on. But little did I know. I mean, my cynicism was so ridiculous and self-defeating. I mean, there's totally a place for this type of fiction. Lee Braxton, an incredible editor, Faber and Faber, still totally committed to this uh, edgy left-field fiction. And not only was my relationship with this editor somebody who encouraged me, he pushed me harder. He actually he challenged me. He pushed the language to push what I was in the books even harder. It was so far away from the cliched idea I had about mainstream publishing. It was completely liberating. When it comes to the idea of being creatively successful and creativity and success, what, what does that mean to you? Well, I had a lot of, I had some major epiphanies about this this summer. I mean, I've talked about it with a lot of people because again, my dreams came true. My actual dreams came true. The tendency is not even to rest there though. Your first thing is, okay, what's next? Okay, now, now, let's, you know, I want my next book to sell even more, or, you know, I imagine if it got listed for a prize, or all that sort of stuff, because then you constantly look ahead again. And one of the biggest skills you develop when, when success happens to you is you realise that success itself does not bring, it's not something that outside of you that brings happiness to you or fulfilment. It just doesn't. It doesn't. I know a lot of very, very famous and successful writers who are completely miserable and have very, very unhappy lives. It does not bring a level of fulfilment. So what one thing it does do is it means that you've got to bring that level of fulfilment to your life. You've got to make a decision when enough is enough. When you are where you want to be, this constant expansion, this constant next thing means happiness is a place that's never arrived at. But you need to make a decision. It's not, happiness isn't ever, ever arrived at until you put a flag down and you say, here, now, this is enough. This is what I want. I've got everything that I want around me. I'm now going to enjoy it. A big thing of success for me is having a lot of time on my hands. My time is my own to do what I want to do. The thing I most want to do is write, so I tend to do that mostly. But I can do anything else that I want during the days. That's a big success thing. And my time is not owned by someone else. Or I'm not made to do things that are not completely, I'm not completely passionate about in order to get through the day. But also, see where you're at. See the scale you're on and celebrate that. I uh, was in France for like half of this summer I spent in France on a Robert Louis Stevenson fellowship writing a new novel. And I had a revelation there in France, one with how the lifestyle of people in the countryside was amazing, like four hour lunches, bottle of wine lunch, beautiful food, everything moving so slowly. Sometimes the shops are closed completely, growing their own vegetables. But on another hand, I met so many artists and artisan creators and craftsmen. I mean, I'm a big fan of craft beer and I discovered two craft beer breweries in this area. It's in Ile de France, just near the forest of Fontainebleau, near a village called uh, uh, Grey, Grey sur long But we were, we were in quite a few, we'd, we'd cycle to nearby villages in between. I'd, I'd write most of the day, I'd cycle, and we discovered these microbrew places. One was called Matek in a small town and one was called Pachamama. And Matek was run by one guy. One guy in a shed who even bottled his own beer. His beers were world class, totally world class IPAs and uh, black IPA beers that I really, really love. His tap rooms open two days a week for three hours each time. 
The rest of the time, he just basically provides the village in a couple of shops. That's it. Mm. I've never seen a more satisfied craftsman or tradesman. Totally loving the life he wanted to live. Plenty of time to do what he wanted and just exist on a scale of one. Pachamama, two employees and one guy who helps him again. Open twice a week, couple of hours a week. And even then, it was funny. One of the guys, because we went to, it was, we went to a birthday party at their brewery. They opened late. It was so, so much fun. So many interesting people. It's tiny little village that they live in where they brew this. Again, this world-class beer. And he was complaining it was too much work. He was like, oh, it's too much work, mate. We need to scale it down a little bit. You know what I mean? He's open twice a week, you know? And he was even saying, yeah, the bank came here. They were like, you could buy these whole buildings. You could you could up your production. You could ship to Paris. You could start providing. They're like, no, no. Because then where would the time we have to do what we want to do during the day even have? So these people, and then so... One night we go to a party. This is what summed up. We went to a party one night and it was these people, again, who just bought a farmhouse. They were doing it up. They were living on a small scale, uh, living in this tiny little village. It was a great little community there. And at the end of the night, everyone was drunk and this song came on. It was by this band I'd never heard of, some West Coast stoner band from America called Dirty Heads. And it was called Vacation. And at one point, everyone around us, and it was people who made these their microbrews, it was artists, it was painters, it was people that were renovating cottages, people were doing all these, who ran cafes and things, like, people who worked in restaurants, people who really were doing what they wanted to do at other time. And they were singing the lyrics to this song. And I always remember the lyrics. I was almost moved to tears. It was, hey, hey, hey. I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. <laughs> and it was just, it was so beautiful. I, it was, you know, and I was so open and moved and it was just, I, I was, I felt so uncynical in that moment. I saw them all singing this beautiful, beautiful song and it really touched me. And, and it, what it was, was these people had defined where, how big was enough. They knew what they wanted. And once it began encroaching on other aspects of their life, they said, no. We have enough. I'm doing what I love. I'm doing it enough times in a day, and I've got space to do everything else. And I don't. And I actually quite like ex existing slightly off the map. It was that incredible sense of satisfaction, and it reminded me that I'm on vacation every single day because I love my occupation. You know what I mean? I am. I'm doing what I do. I'm doing what I absolutely love. I can get to do it for the foreseeable future of the support of an amazing publisher. You know, it's time to say, you know, you've arrived. You know, that sounds amazing. And this this kind of leads on to this question. There's a great. So you're you're sitting writing this memorial of device. You're 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 saying to yourself, this is rubbish. I'm never going to get published. Looking back now and all these stories and the things you get to do, there's a great quote that I love. You said it's not easy being Iggy Pop and Airdry, which I think's a fantastic quote. How is it now? being David Keenan in Glasgow. <laughs> <laughs> it's not easy being David Keane in Glasgow, mate. <laughs> well, I, I love Glasgow, and that's why I think I'd always live in Glasgow as well, because I think Glasgow is so rich with uh, stories and love of language and patter and things like that. So I, as a writer, I love uh, living in Glasgow because it's a total source of inspiration, total stimulation. But what I also love is, I actually, I, I like it when people come up to me and talk to me about the book. It's always totally amazing because... It's like I said, when I was writing the book, it was really, these characters were real to me. And I don't know them any, I don't know what those characters do off, outside of that book. That's as much as I know, that's what they reveal to me. So I know as much about these characters or have a relationship with them as much as anyone else reads the book. You know what I mean? I don't have any privileged uh, insider knowledge of anything else they do outside of that book. If I'd want to find out more about them, I'd have to write more and see what happened. So they kind of came alive to me and I wanted the book to become like an entity, something that would have its own life and go out there. And I love it when people come up and tell me stories or like things that happened in the book and they claim they're real and it happens all the time and it's impossible there's these brilliant stories but it just shows you how kind of real it is a guy came up to me in a pub one night and he's like are you David Keenan I'm like yep and he's like you know what this is Memorial Device and I was like yeah and he was like Big Patty is one of the main characters he's in the band called Memorial Device and this guy says to me I Big Patty was is Big Patty for Erdry was the real Big Patty for Erdry wasn't that it's based on him and I was like there's no Big Patty from Erdry mate I made that up and he's like no 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 he said the Big Patty for Erdry and he even lived where you said he did the top of South, South Bridge Street he said only it wasn't in a cottage, it was actually an apartment. <laughs> so he was just correcting me in one facet of this Amazing, fictional yeah. character oh. that doesn't exist. And there was another, another one of my favourite ones is, at one point there's an artist that squats her council house in Gartley, Gartley Gallery of Geomancy and Geographic Speculation, she calls it. And she just opens a squatty thing and there's not, she doesn't do anything. She blacks out the window so it's like a weird ship lost in the sea at night. But then she just leaves all the furniture in there as it was and she advertises it being open 24 hours for viewings as if it's an art installation. So people start like creeping around in it like, you know, like as if it, 
or an Egyptian tomb or and then they start they start reading weird significance into the placement of the towels on a tea stain or where the TV is, exercising seeing where you are from the outside, which is why we're talking about success or seeing where you are. These were there's a lot of art projects and memorial devices that are all about seeing yourself from outside and seeing how magical it is. So if you set up a, a bland council house as an art installation, just creeping round it like it's an Egyptian tomb, it becomes magical. You turn where you are into a magic place, and that's how that's how Erdry could be the centre of the world if you were able to see it in that way. But when a guy comes up to me in Kilmarnock, not he's from Kilmarnock, and another pub in Glasgow, he said, "Did you write this as memorial device?" He's like, "I loved that, mate. It was so accurate. I feel like it was my life that I lived in that book." And he was like, "You know that bit where they they do the Gartley, Gartley Gallery and they do the council house as an installation?" And I was like, "Ah." He was like, "Oh, they were they were." all up to that in Kilmarnock at the time. And I was like, what? What, they were all squatting council houses and turning them into art installations in Kilmarnock in the 80s? What? That's amazing. But totally amazing. And was this guy totally serious? De absolutely genuine. Just told me that fact deadpanly then just walked away. That's amazing. You know, just, just to let me know that it was, it was accurate. And have you found that, so people coming up to you talking about your book, that must be, that must be really strange. And incredible. That is incredible. It's amazing. It's amazing when they talk about them as if they're real and they talk about the characters or the bits they liked or the bits that moved them. Or, or I mean, most of all, is I think what people think is it kind of like, and my whole thing is about seeing where you are as the centre of the world. That's why I wanted to say that it's possible to have this thing in Eardry. I think people in general are perhaps moved by the book because it makes significance of their own lives. They're kind of like, well, I was in some wee band that never really did anything and never put a cassette out and did had one rehearsal in a wee town in the north of England. It's not, you know, and that was kind of like my life too because... I, my whole thing is I began to think, what's the true story of post-punk? The true story of post-punk is the bands that never made a record. The true story of post-punk are the people that did one issue with a fanzine. You know, the true story of post-punk is people that put on a gig in their local <laughs> town hall for three bands one night that never, ever played again. That's the true story of post-punk. But how, how do you tell that? Well, the only way of telling it is by fiction. Because in a way, it's kind of a thing that never really happened or never had enough impact to really transform the world. But it transformed those people's reality. You can bet it did for that little moment. For that moment, they were moved by the possibilities of DIY. They realised you didn't need to wait for permission or be in London or sign a record label. You could do it right then and there. So that's why it's a fictional novel about a fictitious music scene that never existed in Eardry. But that's why I gave it a series of appendices and an index. Because I was like, imagine having an index for a thing that never existed. In other words, you can go, you can find the locations of things that happened in the book and you can go there. You can go to a place where something actually never happened, but has more kind of psychic significance because we pretend something did happen there. You know what I mean? So it becomes this really weird like field guide to this place that never existed. That's amazing. You know, it's really, really weird. And what's been blowing my mind is when people people start doing the Eardry tours. People send me photographs with this is my motorbike at Eardry train station <laughs> or up in like Catherine Park or somewhere. Yeah, so people are doing that. Yeah, yeah. or find out where like Big Patty's house was or the cafe his mum worked in and things That's like that. Amazing. I mean, and you can do it because it is actually plotted on locations. So I wanted to have this important. I mean, it's not a realist novel in any way. A lot of impossible, surreal things happen in it. Are you but thinking about hiring a tour bus at any point? It would be so amazing driving around there and doing it. I mean, I love that idea. It's amazing. You know? Yeah. But what it is, it's the way the DIY impulse is, well, what are the significant spots in your life? You know, where are the, the, your own stations of the cross? Where was your own pilgrimage would be? Where, where, are, where are the ritual points on your map? And it's that idea of success because someone's, someone's highlight of their life could literally be playing at Nice and Sleazy's in the night they headlined there, but it meant so much to them that that's what they, you know, they still talk to it and they refer about it. And I guess that's what, when people are reading things in the book, they're thinking, you know, they can relate to it. Also, people, people, success is such a strange thing, and sometimes people don't even know the thing that would actually make them most successful. I mean, I was, I, I was very, I've been very interested in the occult. I always say I'm not interested in the culture around it. I'm really not so much, but I've been, been involved in it over the years, and was involved in a few like magical orders over the years just to see what the experience was like and some of it was interesting some of it was absolutely laughable and pathetic and really really tragic and there's all this thing and also Crowley system he's got one of his big things is you know do without Wilch or with the whole of the law it's all about uncovering what your true will is and I, I, I agree as an exercise I think that's really it's a very interesting thing to do it's finding what your core passion is what you want to, how you want your life to be directed and you do find it when you're doing what Crowley calls your true will which is finding your calling your life does tend to fall into place everything kind of makes sense and things fall into place and they start making sense because you're kind of going with the the sort of gravity or the energy that your life's going in. You, you know, all the inertia of the universe behind you when you kind of find that true way of working. But one thing that I always, I always find laughable is that yeah, a lot of these magicians, every one of them, 
believes that their true will is to be a megastar. Every one of them believes that their true will is to be an all-powerful guy with, like, a, a covenant of women, loads of money, driving around in a... You know, getting total respect. Every single one of them believes that's their true will. Okay. But, I mean, it's a total fallacy. People need to really... If you're really going to get down your true will, a lot of people's true will is actually some very small, quiet, just basic, nice things. Do you know what I mean? My mother's true will was to be a teacher, to teach people, to bring up a family, to be able to afford to maybe have some records and some books in the house and maybe have a house for a garden. That was her absolute true will. And then it'd be one family. That, and that was a manifestation of her true will. Sometimes your true will isn't this big, grand, huge, world exploding thing. So sometimes you can fool yourself almost. Mm. And it, your true will must be this big, great, grand thing. But this is what I mean about seeing where you are. Seeing the magic where you are. And this is a thing I've learned from working in an allotment. You get a lot of wisdom from working in an allotment. And I, I, I do garden quite a lot these days because I do have the time in my hands. And I love it, and it's definitely my form of meditating. But one thing that in my running an allotment has taught me is that everything you need at that moment is always right in front of you. If you have the imagination to see it, and the imagination is to recombine it in a way that's going to work for you. So I have this rule in my allotment where I don't spend money. I don't buy it. And when I'm building something, like I'm renovating a hut at the moment, or I'm building some more raised beds or anything like that, or I'm making new decking, I just keep my eyes open. I keep my eyes open for salvage, or I see what I've got and how I can recombine it. I do it in my house, because, I mean, I really like having a nice environment, and I'm constantly working in the house. But again, I find things. I don't spend a lot of money. I build things. I spot things. I find things thrown away, recombine them and things like this. But what it's taught me in general is... The thing that you need at that exact moment is always present in your life right now if you're able to see it because it's an undeniable truism that the the seed of the future is always in the present. It's always in the present. So it's just a question of seeing clearly in your own life what parts of it, what, what it's offering you right now. But being able to see it and rethink it magically and that's... That's magical thinking. That's what that really revolves in. And recently, in terms of magic, I've actually been involved in tarot cards. I've co-designed my own tarot pack. I wrote a short experimental novella called To Run Wild in it, published by the Rough Trade Books. And Rough Trade have also put out a tarot pack that I designed with the artist Sophie Hollington. And I, when I talk, I, I do tarot readings now, and I'm doing quite a few um, over the summer at festivals, and I love it. It's, it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, one hand, it's interesting because I'm a storyteller, mm. and it's about putting stories together from cards and things like that. But another thing about that I love about tarot is I always say to people, this is not prescriptive. The way I think tarot works, you do not re require a supernatural understanding. What it all is, is, is it's a way of reading the present. It's a way of finding out what the possibilities of the present are right now, because as we are sitting here right now with the people around us, what we're doing, we, you and I can read the possibilities at this moment. This moment could go in a lot of different ways, the possibilities there. So I see what tarot is, is it's a sort of grammar that you can then use to read the moment and see the possibilities of the moment. So I don't believe it's about the future. It's about where, what are the possibilities of now? And the seed of the future is always in the now. So this is interesting and this is, um, as we get kind of closer to the end, the thinking of it, what, you know, you've always been through an amazing creative journey in terms of what you've done, the different things you've experienced, where you are now, where you started out. Everyone, I guess when everyone starts off in their journey and either I'll say a young person who's just dying to, you know, get cracking in what they're doing or someone that's maybe in a job or in a creative job and thinks this isn't working, I need to shake up. What, what advice would you give someone be naive and burn your bridges. There are always the two best examples, the advice I always go back to. Be naive. I think that's what happened with me getting signed to creation and saying, sorry, sorry, Faber and Faber and sending my uh, novel to Lee Braxton. It was naivety on my part. I had no idea that you couldn't do that. But thankfully, because I had no idea that you couldn't do that, I did it. So I say be naive. Always presume that the people who are in the area you want to work in or the people who are doing the sort of things you may do might actually be approachable by you. They might not even be approached that often by anyone whatsoever. You know, in fact, they might think it's cool if they get an enthusiastic letter through it by, by the way, mate, I'm so into this. I love what you're doing. I'm interested and getting involved myself I'm super passionate about it it's often as easy as that it's amazing the people that don't think to contact the other people who are doing what they like and just say by the way hey, how do you do this I'm in it I'm a fan of what you're doing a bit of advice I love that I mean people who are wanting to write and come up to me and saying I want to find out about writing I love that I'm like, because of course that's what I would do, make the connection. So be naive, be naive and open, and just don't think there are ever such things as a closed door. There really is not. It really is true. When I when I think back of any example that either our studio or me personally have ever done stuff, it's just out of naivety, and you think, well, I'm going to contact that person, I'm going to do that, and you just realise people just don't. They, don't. they just don't. Most people never do that. But also my idea of faith, don't live in your head, don't, don't give yourself ideas of the type of person you are, or who you think you are, or what your capabilities are. Don't let that show shut down the possibilities of what you can do and don't let it narrow the areas that you might be able to move into just because you think, well, I come from this background and I seem all my life have been defined as having this approach or having these abilities. These are just ideas of who you are, so don't let ideas 
shut down the potential of who you could be. That's where faith comes in. Just see what's in front of you and take it. When you start to get a level, I do this myself, when I start to get a twinge and I'm like, mm, I'm not comfortable with this or this isn't really me, that's always an alarm bell for me that I've narrowed my, my, the image of my idea of who I could be or what I'm capable of. You know what I mean? Ultimately, you're capable of everything. As soon as you narrow yourself down and cut yourself off from that, you've defined yourself as being less than this experience. So as soon as you get that little twinge of uncomfortableness, I always say, excellent, there's another, I'm about to grow a new limb here. Do you know what I mean? Or like a third eye's about to pop out or something. So I push myself a little bit harder. But I always, so faith is really important to have as well. And burn your bridges, I always say that. If, if you really, really, really know what you want to do, and most people deep down know what their absolute burning passion is, the thing that drives them, the thing that they obsessively read about or check out or dream of or imagine, picture themselves in. Well, if you really want that, do you know what? Burn your bridges. Destroy everything else in your life that does not facilitate getting there and give yourself no way back. That's what I mean by burning your bridges. Get to the other side and then just blow the bridge up so you can't go back. Because what you, I think then what you do, and I think this is a basic magic act, you then send a message to the rest of the world that this has to it has to happen. There's no way it cannot happen now. And so all your forces, all your powers are marshaled towards this kind of one-pointedness of achieving what it is that you want to do. And I think if you can do that and you're capable of that, then it'll work for you. Because most people aren't. Most people aren't, you know? But you need that absolute burning passion. You need something that is so you're so passionate about, you're willing to burn your bridges. And then you say to the universe, yes, I'm ready to do this. What does the next year have in store for you then? Well, I've got, I've got, still got quite a lot of travelling. I do a lot of festivals over the summer. I've been doing the tarot card readings and talking about the Rough Trade book to run wild on it. I'm in Mexico for a bit in, in the autumn because the Spanish language edition of uh, This Is Memorial Device has really exploded over there against that, which is amazing to me because again it's about small town experiences and it's just well why can't you wait to that in Mexico and small towns being a little bit off the map but being transformed by DIY culture doing your own thing so it makes total sense to me so I'm really excited to go over to do to do some uh, promotion of that and then my new novel comes out on Faber in January it's called For the Good Times and it's set in Belfast during the Troubles a group of kids growing up getting involved in the troubles and then being initiated into that dark side of, of, of what's happening in Belfast at the time but also again ultimately trying to say yes I went back to the fact that all my books are even um, somehow this book about the troubles is an attempt for people living through a very very difficult dangerous and traumatic situation but still somehow trying to see value in the roles in it and still trying to say yes to where they are at that moment in time and seeing it seeing the drama the tragedy the beauty and the horror and still been able to say yes to every part of it you know what I mean which is that's what life asks you and you know that's what and that's what art is good for I think my whole thing for the future is I would like eventually to cure myself of writing I always talk about see you should art should cure you of art because I mean I am I'm possessed by it I, I, I don't really I say like I have a time in myself during the day I do but I can never stop writing and there's never a, I mean I'm still I'm writing just now on a new book at the moment I just completed an R1 uh, last month so it never and so I said oh take the rest of the year off it's me completed the R novel but three days in I had an idea for a new novel and I started writing again, you know? So I hope at some point in my life that I can cure myself of writing and I can get to the point where I was like, I've done what I came here to do. I can, my brain can can slow down. I can stop being occupied by all these disparate voices and all these tales that will be told. And I can walk out the other side of, of writing. That's why I think people like, you know, Rimbaud, the poet Rimbaud, I think that's why he's such a legend. Because, I mean, he cured himself of poetry as a kid. You know, as a kid, he cured himself. He went in one end, wrote the most amazing, mind-blowing poetry of all time, then walked away and did something else. I, I love that. The ability to do it, know you've done it, and walk away is absolutely beautiful. So, at the moment, I'm still caught up in, in writing these novels. I can't stop, but I like to think somewhere up ahead, I've cured myself writing, and I can sit <laughs> back and say, you know, my job here is done, you know what I mean? <laughs> the, the allotment calls. Yeah, exactly, I love like a oh. hermit on the allotment for the rest of my life. Well, David, as our first guest, I don't think we could uh, ask for any more. Um, hopefully you won't be our last. I really appreciate you giving up your time. Wish you all the best luck in the future for your books. Thank you very much, David. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Yes, thank thank you. you. Thank you, David. What an excellent way to kick off the first Gab podcast. So if you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe or check out the Gab website at gab.scot for news and future events and podcasts. Cheers.